Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend Preston Jenkins, and I'll introduce him in a second. I just wanted to let you know it's a beautiful February afternoon here in Salt Lake City on a Saturday, and Preston, um, who lives in Utah County, I believe, is driven to my home in Salt Lake County. Um, just by way of introduction with Preston, Preston, I became aware of Preston because I listened to Elder Holland's talk in October of 2015 um, called Behold Thy Mother. And as my wife and I were listening to that talk, we heard Elder Holland talk about a missionary who have, had returned to his mission, who I think he used the word same-sex attraction. And and that's, I didn't have a name. I didn't know who that was, but I thought there's a great man um, that is walking a really unique road. And I was so helpful to hear that story. But I've since connected with Preston Jenkins, and he's going to share his story on our podcast. But just by way of overview for our listeners, sometimes I like to kind of set up the big story before Preston then goes through the full story. Um, we'll talk about Preston um, knowing he's gay, SSA, in his teenage years, um, serving a mission in Tokyo. That didn't last too long. He left in 20. 10, and he'll talk about coming home and why he came home. Um, and then five years um, between that and then serving again in the Atlanta, Georgia mission at age 24, kind of unusual to be home five years for a mission, but that's part of Preston's story, serving in Atlanta, completing his mission, following his mission, um, working at the MTC for three years, teaching mission prep, has taught maybe 600 missionaries during that time. But this is a unique story. It's more than just Preston being gay. It's um, a story about how to deal with really difficult things, um, trauma, PTSD, emotional challenges um, that Preston has been dealing with and through the atonement of Jesus Christ has found a way to heal his heart. So those of you that are listening that are dealing with really complicated things, wondering how the atonement applies to you and how you deal with difficult things. This is a podcast for you. I listened to this podcast this morning on my walk, and I learned some things from Preston that no one else has ever taught me before. Um, I messaged him this morning, and he won't like this, and I said, I'm putting you right up there with Elder Holland on your influence in my life for some of the things you've taught me. And so we just hope you listeners feel a good spirit here. We both offered a prayer before we started. I'm going to start with a quote that you traditional listeners have heard a lot. Um, it's the wounded healer, and it's a, it's a quote by Henry Norwin, a Catholic priest, and it says, a minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about what he speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led out of the desert by someone who's never been there. So Preston knows some deserts that I don't know. <laughs> Um, and has walked some really difficult roads through no fault of his own. There's, there's tremendous wounding in that. But I think one of his life missions is to be the wounded healer. And it's our prayer that you'll feel some healing. And um, you also have better tools if you have priesthood responsibility or family member that's suffering, that you'll have insights come into your mind about how to heal other people that are really hurting in your life. Anything that we need to correct from a bio standpoint? No, no. Is that okay? It's all accurate. <laughs> and of course, Preston's active in the church. I want our listeners mm -hmm. to know that. Um, age 28 is in a, working on a career in web development. So there's a lot of great jobs in that world, Preston. Keep going down that road. <laughs> yep, that's the plan. 
take us, let's start before your mission. Just um, talk about your awareness of your sexuality. Okay, sure. Um, how and this to, is in Vegas, I think. Yeah, correct. I was born and raised in Las Vegas, Nevada. Had just a typical um, upbringing. I don't remember anything extraordinary about it other than having a lot of siblings. But um, I was born and raised in the church. Um, I'm the second of nine. And so was always in kind of like a, I had more responsibilities growing up and whatnot, like babysitting and things like that. So just kind of grew up in that kind of a, uh, an environment at home. Um, also grew up with parents that lived the gospel. They didn't just talk about it. They actually like did things about it. So uh, lots of great example setting by my parents, so that like when I reached middle school and started noticing like, oh, I'm not really attracted to girls. I think I'm attracted to men. Like it, when I started developing those feelings, um, I kind of saw it as a non-issue at first. Like it was like, okay, so <laughs> I didn't really see it as like a big deal. Um, not until high school and then you, your perspective of the world gets a little bit bigger. You start to meet more people, hear more stories have more experience and you realize, okay, maybe this is bigger than I thought. Um, but even still, I just didn't really see the need to like draw attention to it or make a big deal out of it. I kind of had in my mind that I was going to follow that like typical church route of, I'm just going to go on my mission after high school. I'm just going to uh, go to BYU afterward and get married and just like typical timeline things. But I didn't really make a big deal of it in high school. Did you take a label on um, SSA, gay, or just not really kind of just kind of move forward in your life? No, I I never really identified with any of those That's labels because to me, like the they're labels, like they kind of connote a certain behavior or mindset that I just never uh, related to. So. No, I never took on a personal label. I think that's fine. I th I yeah. think everybody is just needs to choose that road, and some yeah. people don't need to take on a label. How was your emotional health? Some tell me their emotional health is fine during the high school years, um, pre-mission years. Some tell me that they're kind of dealing with this and not telling everybody. It's kind of weighing on them. Share with our listeners how you're doing during your high school years. Sure. I mean, of course it would weigh on me, but it wasn't a constant, like there'd be times that it was more troublesome than other times. But I would say generally high school was actually quite blissful, which is, I recognize kind of unique. It just hit me later. I mean, after high school was kind of nuts, but high school was, was wonderful. Did a lot of extracurricul extracurriculars, met a lot of people, even had a lot of gay friends, but again, never felt the need to like identify with that or engage in some of the behavior that I observed in my peers. It was just, no, it wasn't for me then. I didn't want it. Tell us about your mission call, where you got assigned and how your and your feelings of being assigned there. Um, so one of the extracurriculars I had done in high school was studying Japanese. I loved the culture. I loved the people, the language I thought was beautiful. Um, and so when I got my mission call to serve in Tokyo, Japan, I was thrilled. I was like, is this allowed? I didn't know you were allowed to go where you wanted to go. I, I wanted to go to Japan. So it was really exciting. Lots of energy uh, surrounding the event. Opened it at a family reunion. So like it was a big deal. It was kind of a big, exciting. Were you the moment. first to go of these nine? No, no. So I have an older brother and he, okay. he um, when I left for my mission, he was already out on his mission okay. in the States. 
Okay. So. Yeah. Tell us more about Japan. Uh, I love Japan. It is beautiful. And, and Japanese people are quite hospitable too. Like just in general, people are very kind. Um, they definitely have uh, this a strong sense of community. Um, people really pool together there. I've, I mean, the saints in Japan are incredible because they have, I, I, the way I always described it is they have to swim upstream. Whereas like in the States, I feel like being religious, especially here in Utah, it's a downstream. Most people are being religious, but in Japan, they have to fight against that um, cultural norm. But anyway, I, I loved it. People were wonderful. The food was wonderful. The language I loved and was picking up on pretty fast. So in general, like it was a really happy thing to get to go there at the beginning. So. Yeah. Tell us about your I think there was two transfers that occurred, your first transfer and your second transfer. Mm -hmm. Just talk about those two transfers. Sure. Yeah, first one was pretty typical. Uh, I had a great trainer. He was really nice, and we had a lot of fun, and he just, just kind of helped me acclimate um, as best he could, as much as you can in six weeks. Um, it was my second companion, though, my second transfer. That was the one that was abusive, and that kind of started me down a very dark path. That all started my second transfer. Tell us what happened. Um, well, for, I think first it's important to know that like he, he was a native, like he wasn't American. So there was a language barrier first and foremost of his English was probably about as good as my Japanese. So communication was hard anyway. Um, but then also he was much bigger than me. He's not what you would picture as like a, a typical a Japanese man. He was tall, uh, just as tall as me and much more muscular and thicker than me. Um, and so he just had this generally intimidating presence um, and very quickly realized he just wasn't a kind person. Like day one, I was like, uh oh, like this is not going to be fun. Uh, and that was just like my general character read on him when I first met him was this guy's kind of intense. And then um, it very quickly turned into just constant daily emotional abuse where like he would just have these rages that I never knew what would set him off, tried to avoid them, but then something new would set him off. And so, I mean, that was just like typical day was anytime it was just us two, he was constantly berating me about something trivial, like the way my swung my arms when I walked or where my backpack sat on my shoulder or how I pronounced a word. And yet he was quite disobedient. Like we didn't even follow the schedule. So I wasn't really getting time to study the language and yet he'd be very critical of my language skills. So it was just a hot mess. Like I just could not appease this man and was constantly his uh, verbal punching bag. But then uh, it quickly developed into sexual abuse in the night as well, where he became much more physical. Um, and was that, that was like my life for those six weeks. It was his last transfer. I tried to reach out for help. Like there, there are more details to the story, of course, tried to reach out to help. It kind of backfired, wasn't really handled very well. And so I just decided to just keep it a secret then, just like not bring attention to it and just deal with it um, because it was his last transfer. So I just figured once he leaves, I'll never have to see him again. It'll be over. Little did I know like how long lasting that damage can be. And I mean, I, I only lasted about four more transfers after that. So kind of snowballed. Thanks for just talking about this. Sure. I mean, this is pretty tender stuff. And I listened to your video this morning and my respect for you kind of went up a few more notches as I just heard you talk about this. 
think it takes a lot of courage just to say emotional and sexual abuse mm-hmm. out loud and acknowledge that happened. Yeah. Um, you're a survivor of that. I think you know you didn't do anything wrong, but at the time, you know, you, you're just in this isolated area where you can't, t- sounds like you tried to talk and that didn't oh, yeah. work. So you're saying this is logically so Preston, this is the only thing I can do is just lock this inside of me and try to go forward. And it's interesting because that, I mean, people's stories are different, but people who experience emotional or sexual or even physical abuse, I followed the typical pattern of of thought. Like at first you think you can help them and you try and help them and then you become fiercely defensive of them, like defending their behavior. And then you start believing what they're saying of like, maybe I am a terrible person and maybe I am a terrible missionary. Like all you start believing all the terrible things they say about you. And then it has much longer lasting impact. And and I've seen that to be pretty standard for people who experience this kind of abuse. At the time, did you think it was your fault or did you realize this isn't right and it's not my fault? Um, to be honest, I don't remember. I, I remember just being really confused. Like I wasn't ever going to act out on my sexual feelings because of covenants I'd made in the temple. And so I was really confused why I would be put in a situation. Like it, I just was confused. Sure. It's like it's a great of word. all the places for this to happen. Why on a mission from another missionary? Like that was the part that I just could not. Like if I, if I had been in Vegas and had been sexually assaulted by like a classmate or something like that, like I went through all these scenarios of if it had been anywhere else, it wouldn't have been such a shock. Like, cause, but a mission on a mission from another missionary, like what? This should be like the one place that this just doesn't happen. And yet it did. And since being home and talking to other people, it's not, it's not common, but there are other stories out there too. This happens and it's, it's really sad. It's that, and I think that was the most jarring was just the context in which all of this was happening. And when I hear somebody, this is for our listeners, not for Preston, that's a survivor of sexual abuse is the term I use versus a victim. I use survivor now. I try not to let my mind go, what were the, what actually happened? You know, mm-hmm. I just sort of, so we're not going to go there in the podcast. And I've just tried to train, chain, train my mind not to really go there on the details of what were the specifics for me. That's just the way I handle that. Encourage our listeners to do that. Maybe situations with a therapist or really trusted friend where someone needs to go there, but it should be them leading the story versus me asking generally. Sure. Is that fair I, advice, I feel Preston? like that's a great principle to live by. Yeah. And and I've never felt pressure from anybody to share details. I'm usually the one relinquishing them. Okay. And I mean, I'm a bit of a gab too. Always have been. I like talking. So it's a good. It's a gift. <laughs> yeah. Talk about how this experience then is like a slow burn or whatever the right vocabulary is that then led to, you know, finally coming, finally, I don't know if finally is the right word, but just the reality of what happened to you led to you coming home. Sure. So, I mean, I think first and foremost, I was wounded and raw, didn't recognize it at the time, but after that missionary, like I said, it was his last transfer. So he left at the end of the transfer home. Um, but I didn't realize how damaged I was until like everyday normal things were like over the top upsetting to me. So for example, like my next companion, he was great. Like he was a hard worker, wanted to be 
um, obedient, was his own leader and was like trying to balance all of those responsibilities while having to still kind of train me because I hadn't really done much the transfer before. Yet I was so sensitive to any sort of negativity or anger or I just was an anxious wreck looking back. I mean, I was just on edge about everything. Um, and so regardless of how good or bad the rest of my companions were, I just wasn't in a good place to process it all. And it took a few transfers and a few more companions to realize that. Of My next companion was great. The one after that, well, that's when the earthquake happened, that that's big right. tsunami that hit Sendai. Wow, north of you, isn't that Correct, yeah. Tokyo? The, the tsunami didn't reach our mission, but we did feel the earthquake. Um, and so we got evacuated to another mission and then spent a transfer and a half in another mission south in South Japan and then um, transferred back to Tokyo. So yeah, I had maybe like five more companions overall. Um, but again, like typical things like disobedience in the mission or things like that, or I don't know, pretty standard things that normally wouldn't have like gutted me the way they did. But again, I just kept tracing it back to like, what the heck happened? Second transfer. I can't really process that. And then I just slowly started falling apart. It's hard to do normal things when you're anxious all the time, let alone a missionary lifestyle, which is quite taxing. So I like some of your vocabulary as you describe this. It's good. You've got a good way of creating. I've had a long time to think about it and how I want to describe it. But And I try and do it justice. Like, did I have disobedient companions? Yes. But was I the best companion? No. I was an emotional basket case at the time. So, um, so yeah, it is what it is. But it just kind of reached the point where I was not healthy and I just had to just fess up to that. I, I had also physically injured myself in a bike accident. My shoulder wouldn't stay in socket. It was, it was, it was just a hot mess. So I then had to figure out, well, like, how do I get home? <laughs> like, I don't want to just like say I want to go home. I didn't know that was an option. So I was like, well, how do you get home? I, well, I don't want to like break rules to get home because that's not my style. Um, I was like, well, how can I get my mission president to send me home? And I was like, well, if I tell him I'm gay, then then I can like push that button and that's how I can get sent home. So that's what I attempted to do, but it didn't really pan out, <laughs> at least the way I thought it would. Like my mission president, he responded, I thought quite well to it of just like... Did you tell him an interview or did you email him? No. So what had happened at the time is I he was the first person I ever told. Um, so I had never told anybody up to this point. And I, I finally was like, this is like an emergency situation. I'm ready to tell somebody just so I can get out of here and go get help. Because that's not why I wanted to go home. I mean, I was just using it as like a bargaining chip. Because again, I didn't realize I could just ask to be sent home. Um, but I wrote it in a letter and then handed him the letter in an interview. Super that's great. Childish, but I, mean, I didn't know how else to do it. So I just handed him the letter. He read the letter in front of me and then looked up and said something like, well, like you can still be a missionary and be gay. Like that, that doesn't have to be a reason to go home. And it, at the time in my mind, I was like, well, I know that duh, I've already been a missionary, but, but I want to go home. And so I just kind of pushed the issue. I couldn't vocalize about the abuse. Like I, I wasn't there yet able to talk about it. So I just kind of pushed the issue. He asked if I wanted to like talk with my parents and my bishop. 
So I had phone calls with um, all of them and they all were saying the same thing. They were all saying the same stuff of like, Hey, like you, we love you. You can still be a missionary. Like that's, that's like, we don't think anything less of you for this. I mean, they responded in like all of the best ways, but in my mind, I'm thinking that's not why I want to come home. And so I appreciated all the love and the understanding they were sending my way, but I was like, I just want to go home. So I just kept pushing it. And like a week and a half, two weeks later, I, I was on a flight home. So that was kind of how it all went down. I think you handled that really well. I think you handled the best you could. Yeah. And again, I've since learned that it's quite typical for people who are survivors of abuse is that they, they don't know how to talk about it. It's such a weird topic to breach that how do you just fess up and say, somebody really messed me up and I don't know how to tell you that. So I just thought it was easier. I, and so in my mind, like this is so backwards looking back, but in my mind, I thought telling them I was gay was easier than telling them I was sexually abused. Interesting. So anyway, again, it was just in my mind, a bargaining chip to get home. Uh, but I went home. <laughs> Thanks for just talking about that part of your story. It's helpful. And I think other people that are walking that road, you know, that helps them. Mm-hmm. So you fly home, you go home to Vegas. Yeah. So, um, oh, it's, there's so many ironies in life that you're like, Hmm, who did this? Uh, because I came home the, to my family reunion where the year before I had opened my mission call. So it's like, well, like, let's just shove that dagger in and twist it. And so my parents like came back to Vegas to pick me up from the airport And they had no intention of taking me to the family reunion. But in my mind, I was like, no, I want to just get back to like normal things so I can be just happy and healthy again. So I was like, no, let's go to the family reunion. Like, why are we not going? And they're like, well, we didn't want to just assume you'd be okay with that. But I kind of pushed and we went to the family reunion. I was not the same person. And it was just kind of a wake up call of, I can't go back Well, now what? Like, again, it was just like another moment where I had to fess up to myself that I, something was wrong, that I wasn't healthy, that something was off. I mean, the year before it was a time of laughter and excitement. And this time I was just numb. It was freakish. I was scared by how little I felt. So I, I just kind of tried to get back into the swing of things. My parents were very responsive though. Like my parents weren't stupid. They knew something had happened uh, that I wasn't telling them about. Um, I mean, they knew me. They knew that that wasn't going to be a reason that I came home. And I was really grateful that they picked up on some of those signals uh, because, again, I didn't know how to tell them. But they knew, and so, but they were also patient. And, like, they would ask but never push. And so I was home for about a month before I finally did tell them what happened. And even then it wasn't vocal. Again, it was in writing. Like, I wrote it down. And just gave my mom the laptop with the Word document on it. So, I don't know, it kind of unfolded in a clunky way. But eventually it got to the point where I told them all that had happened and started getting some of the medical attention I needed. So, Why did your parents, did they just know you well enough to know this is more than just you? There's kind of three, there's three things going on here. You've come out as gay to your parents mm-hmm. for the first time. You're an early release missionary. Mm-hmm. And then you're a, a survivor of a, of abuse. Yeah. And 
and I think what you're saying is they knew there was something more than just you were gay and you came home from a mission. They knew yeah. that there was something more going on here. Sure. I mean, the person that left was and happy maybe... and the person that came back was just flat. Just, I, I was just, un, I, and would have outbursts, emotional outbursts that were like, I mean, looking back now, it seems so obvious, but at the time it was probably like to, to them, just like subtle signals of like something else is going on here. Like you don't leave on a mission and come back sad because you're gay. Like that something else is, is a factor there. Um, and so like when I did finally tell my mom and then uh, we told my dad and once we did finally walk through that process, my mom vocalized to me. She's like, I knew something else had to have gone on. And it was interesting too, because as I started expanding that circle of confidence to other family members and even friends, multiple people had impressions that something very serious had happened to me. And it was just interesting to hear of those spiritual warnings that some of them had had that, I mean, it's not like the spirit came and told them like Preston has gone through the following things, but they just would get these little impressions of something's really wrong be nice to him or, or whatever the impressions were. I mean, it differed depending on the person. So I, I was just really struck by that of how often the spirit prepared people to be told what had happened to me. And I would say first and foremost, my older brother responded so well. Tell I, our listeners his name. His, his name's Trevik. It's unique. I've never met another that, Trevik. I heard that this morning on the North yeah. Star video. Um, my dad served in Sweden and he, we just jokingly claim he heard it in Sweden somewhere or something, but it's, it's a unique name. But Trevik and I growing up, we were like typical arch rivals, uh, like arch nemesis, brother dynamic. We, we just butted heads a lot. I was the human, like humanities. I did theater and, and music and speech and debate and he did all sports and just very typical brothers that fought. And so I was shocked that when I came home, how kind and responsive and alert he was um, to how damaged I was. And when he found out that I was gay, I was so nervous that he would respond poorly because of jokes that he would make and comments he had made in high school. But he grew, he'd, he'd grown up and matured a lot on his mission as well. And he was so responsive and so willing to understand, would ask questions and was very attentive. But anyway, he was one of the first people that I wanted to tell because he was so kind and responsive. What advice would you give parents that recognize something is there, there's something going on with their kids that they don't know. And there's just mother intuition in particular picks up on these things. Sure. <laughs> and your mom, you know, is one of the heroes of this story. What's her first name? Sherry. Sherry is one of the heroes of this story as I've um, felt her, you know, her influence for good and just a heroic, wonderful woman. But what advice do you have for parents that are recognizing something might be going on? Um, well, I do want to just give my dad a little shout out too. Good. His name's His, Trent. Okay. But I mean, I have always been close to my mom. I mean, she she and I for years through, through high school and whatnot, like we would stay up so late talking, like we're, we have a lot of the same interests. So I'm super close to my mom. And for, like you said, my mom was like a huge champion to me and just a huge hero and support to me through all of this. 
But behind the scenes, something that I only found out after the fact, my dad was a huge support to her. I love that. Um, because I mean, my dad and I weren't very close, like, like we weren't best friends, always talking about all the things uh, like I was with my mom. And so I would always talk with my mom, but then I would find out that my mom would go then to him for support. <clears throat> Sorry, that makes me a little emotional just because my parents are awesome and they really understand the importance of the vows that they made when they were married. Um, and then of course, too, my mom would turn to her siblings and her parents. And I mean, she had a huge support system to hold me up uh, that I was unaware of at the time, really. I just was talking to her about stuff, but she would then go and get buoyed up by our incredible family as well. So, and I apologize, you you asked about just like what advice you would have. Yeah, I love that stuff. That's great. Well, and it's just that just my first piece of advice would be just know you don't have to be the first responder. My dad wasn't. He he wasn't actively engaged in the healing process with me one on one, but he was still involved. He was helping the helper. <laughs> I don't know how else to word that. Um, but I, I would say first and foremost, just know you don't have to be the first responder. Um it very naturally happened that my mom became that person to me because we already had a super tight relationship that had been going on for years. So when I came home and needed somebody to talk to, of course she was the one that I would talk to. That said though, uh, I did go to a therapist when I first came home and I went to him because I wanted to shield my mom from the, the things that we were talking about at therapy but then it finally reached the point where like he invited my mom to, to come to one of the sessions. And when my mom and I left, she just said, she's like, you know, like we can talk about this. Like I'm, I'm available if you want to talk to me about this as well. And I confessed, I was like, well, I'm trying to shield you from this. I don't want you to have to deal with this. And that would be my second piece of advice is it just make yourself available because I took her up on that offer and it was hard for both of us of course because she shared that burden with me but she just made herself available um available for me to call and rant available for me to call and cry available to just sit with when i'd get angry um or what i mean there's so many like individual experiences that stemmed from that simple offer that she made that, hey, I'm available if you want to talk to me about this. Um, so I don't know. I, I'm, I'm I not love- qualified to give advice, but just from personal experience, just know you don't have to be the first responder. Help people that are the first responders if that's the case. But if you are the first responder, I think bottom line, just be available. You don't have to fix it. Just be available. It's really powerful because every parent can do that. Mm-hmm. You you don't have to be clinically trained to be available. No. You don't have to. You just, I love what you're sharing there because everybody can do that. And I love the role of your dad and your mom. As a parent, I recognize that we have balancing roles at time that are mm-hmm. complementary in nature, but they're different in nature. Yeah. And I love this, this beautiful relationship your parents have and their different roles with you and how you love both of those roles. I love that you wrote this out. I think that's a great way to share information. I used to sometimes counsel the YSAs to, you know, write something out. And sometimes that just gave them, it was a very good way sometimes to share a story or to get something out. Agreed, yeah. 
And so your mom just read this and then she knew. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then that document actually kind of became the way that we told more people. At first, I didn't want to talk about it, I, that, which is why I wrote it down is I didn't want to talk about it at first. And so that document got passed around. It, I would send, I, we joke about it now. I would send my parents as my ambassadors to go like tell other people about what had happened. And they would always bring the document with them. And uh, so like we told my brother, we told my mission, we, I sent a copy to my mission president, uh, gave a copy to my bishop and then slowly just, like I said, expanded that circle over the years. Talk about your bishop and his role in your life and who he is. Um, so at the time, uh, my bishop was David Holland. Uh, he's one of Elder Holland's sons. Um, and again, just who planned this? Because I, I was so, so, so blessed to come home to a ward that was in his stewardship. He was just, I mean, everything you love about Elder Holland uh, David Holland has inherited those traits. Uh, he is a good man. And and his wife, Jeannie, is also just wonderful. They're just an awesome family. And so I knew immediately when I came home and, and made the decision to tell my mom and dad that like I wanted Bishop Holland to know as well all that had happened. And so, um, yeah, I mean, all the things that made my parents great help David Holland also mimicked that as well. Like he was just really attentive and made a point of having conversations with me or at least making himself available to have those conversations with me. Why, why is it good that your share story shared, you shared your story with other people beyond just your mom and dad, a brother, um, a bishop, just why is that, why was that helpful to your healing or was it? Um, I think the more I did it, the more healing uh, resulted uh, from that at first though, it was like scary is like, I didn't, I didn't know how people would respond to it, but the more people that I told, the more I realized that people don't care. Uh, and, and I mean that in a good way, meaning like they don't make a fuss about it. Like people generally are like, wow, thanks for sharing that with me. Like I can be a little bit more wise or attentive or um, careful about um, how I act around these people that deal with any one of these topics. Like you said, it's not just that I was gay, it's that I was also abused and also was an early return missionary. So it, I was surprised how often people responded quite well of just, I don't know. I, I And again, I don't know if that's because of luck or what, but it's just people responded really well when they learned more. And so it just kind of gained momentum. I, I started... Um, sharing it with more and more people. And also because I felt like I owed people an explanation. Again, people knew me. I, it was Preston Jenkins came home early. What? Like, why is he home early? Like, I just, I don't know. I don't know if this is a good thing, but our family gained the reputation of like, Ooh, it's the Jenkins boys. They're so good. And blah, blah, blah. Which I don't know why people said that. Cause again, we all feel quite ordinary. We all struggle and have our own demons to battle, but there was a reputation as well that I felt like I had to make a response to of like, I wanted people to understand, look, I'm not home because I'm bad. I'm home because I'm mad and broken and sad. So anyway, I felt that was part of it is I felt like I owed people an explanation I think that's great. I think that's a sign of strength, of courage, of confidence. I don't think that's, you're trying, I think, I think that's great. It takes a lot of courage to do what you're doing. And I wouldn't quite know how to navigate that as a parent on one. 
there's this side of protecting, there's this side of parenting that want to protect you. Mm -hmm. If you were my son, I'd say, well, let's not tell anybody this. And, and my parents and I had and conversations like be, that. That may create shame around, you know, this is a shameful experience and we don't want to talk about it. And that may prevent healing. Um, and I don't know what the right thing to do in every situation is. No, I would say it's probably circumstantial. Like I think generally there are principles you can follow, but... No. And, and it's interesting you bring that up because we had conversations like that where my, I would say, I'm just going to like put a Facebook post out there. And my parents, that is when they pushed was like, I don't think that will do what for you, what you need right now. And I'm so grateful that they pushed back on that because that would have been a terrible decision at the time in, in my circumstances. I, I would have opened myself up to so much more danger and temptation when I was still quite vulnerable from Japan. I wasn't healed yet. And so I, it was, in, it, again, it's interesting that you bring that up because my parents first and foremost, their priority was getting me healthy. Um, it was like, okay, you came home early. So what? Okay. You're gay. So what? You need to get healthy again. Like your mental health is really important to us. And like, because of this abuse and whatnot, like that's the priority right now is we can continue to have conversations about your sexuality. We can continue to have problem or question or conversations about the problems that the mission field face, but why don't we get you healthy first? And because they knew that underlying all of my problem, like when you're mentally not well, everything's worse. So I guess they kind of tried to treat the root of the problem before they attacked any of the branches. I don't know if that made any sense. It does, it does make sense. Talk about how um, even with a great family support system and understanding what had happened here, um, things continued to, I don't know the right words, decline, get harder, sure. emotional health um, went worse. <laughs> yeah, agreed. I Talk about your emotional health and then we'll talk about your journey with the church. Okay. I, I would say... First and foremost, just because you have a good family doesn't guarantee that, like, uh, how do I want to word this? Just because I had good circumstances doesn't mean I was open to receiving the help. Um, I mean, look at the scriptures. There's no, like, perfect family. And even ones that seem to have a lot of good stuff, they still had crazy kids. I mean, come follow me. The last couple of weeks has been Laman and Lemuel. And it's like, come on, guys. Like, you have good family. Like, what is your problem? So, I mean, that said, like, just because I had a good family and great support does not mean I used that support to help me. I fought. I pushed back. I became quite bitter. Um, and so, yeah, I got worse because I didn't respond well to their loving kindness. I lashed out and pushed and ranted and raved and just got angrier and angrier as well. So I would say that was my fault. <laughs> like the reason it got worse was because I lashed out kind of like a dog that will bite you if you try and help it when it's wounded. Like it's an analogy I've heard before that kind of fits. I did not want to be bothered. I, I was so angry. Were you talking about PTSD at this point or did that sort of yeah. diagnosis, just talk about when you recognize this was a PTSD that happened with Japan and there's a whole series of then things that would normally occur in a PTSD situation. Sure. So when I first came home, um, the reason that we started therapy right away is they, they just assumed that it was depression. And of course, like PTSD, part of PTSD is depression. And so, I mean, they were pretty accurate in that regard. Um, but in the first um, like couple of months that I was home, my mom was over at her mom's house, my grandma's house. And my topic, came, uh, like they were started talking about me and 
my mom was, she knew, but I hadn't yet asked that my grandparents know. So my mom knew what had happened. And so my grandma was trying to like have a conversation. My mom's trying not to like let my grandma know that she knows more than her. My grandma just made this passing comment. She just said, well, are you sure it's depression and not PTSD? And my mom was like, well, like, it, I mean, I don't, I don't know what the rest of their conversation was, but my mom came home and said, is it PTSD? And we like, this is so not correct. But like we pulled up a Google search and we're like, what's PTSD? And we, I could check all of the boxes of the symptoms of PTSD, except the one regarding to military service, because I wasn't in the military. But um, yeah, it just, it was just a little comment that my grandma made that kind of was like, wait, is it that? And then my mom and I sat down we went through the list and it's like, oh my gosh. And then my next therapy session, I like brought that to my therapist and I was like, I think it's PTSD. And he was like, actually, yeah, that's sounds a little bit more accurate and we can better treat this now that we know that it's that. And my poor therapist, he was a marriage and family counselor. And, and the reason I was going to him was because it was on a friend's recommendation that we encountered him. And he was very transparent in saying, look, I'm not really qualified for PTSD. So then he had recommendations of who then to turn to um, now that we kind of had a, a pin on what it was. How long had you been home before you... Um, found on your own the PTSD with grandma's inspiration. Sometimes <laughs> prayers get answered through other people I know, that and, point and us into an answer. Funniest ways too. Yeah. Like I said, it was just like this passing comment that my grandma made. Um, and, and it would have been in the first few months, first like, few months. Um, cause I came home in like towards the end of summer. I had su surgery on my shoulder, was going through physical therapy for that. Um, and that was like a six month process of physical therapy. And then it, it was sometime in that six month period. Um, I, and I, I, unfortunately I can't remember exactly Tell when our listeners what PTSD is. Uh, so, well, first it's an acronym. It stands for post traumatic stress disorder. Um, and basically it's just a, it's a way of organizing some of the symptoms that people go through after abuse or, or even just traumatic events in general, like, um, all kinds of things can can lead to PTSD. And, and all the research that I read say that most people actually have PTSD from something, but usually we're able to find balance again after a traumatic event on our own. But it becomes diagnosed and treated when it when we're incapable of coming back to balance after a traumatic event. But all kinds of things can do it, like a death in a family, a, an earthquake. Even, like mm -hmm. That's not why I have PTSD, but my mom even suggested like, well, maybe, or no, no, actually, I think that's what my grandma was talking about where she's like, well, did the, did the earthquake scare him? Or like, is it PTSD from the earthquake? Actually, now I had forgotten that. So, so yeah, it can be caused by all kinds of things, but, um, it's just depression and anxiety associated with the memory of a traumatic event. And, and the best um, explanation I've ever heard of PTSD was um, from one of the counselors I saw over the years. He said, it's like in a horror movie where the soundtrack gets really scary. You can tell from the music that something scary is about to happen. And he said, imagine a scary movie without the soundtrack. It, it wouldn't be as scary. Part of what makes it scary is the music. And he said, PTSD is somebody lives through a horror movie scene and then they go to a dramatic scene in their life or to a romantic scene in their life or just a comedy scene in their life, but the scary music's still playing or the scary music starts to play 
And it's like, you feel like you're in danger again when you're not obviously like your circumstances are fine. You're in a comedy scene. Everything's supposed to be funny, but it's scary music playing. And that, that to me was like the best definition. I was like, that's what I've been experiencing is I was still hearing scary music. I was on edge all the time. I was just hypervigilant about everything because I was, I still felt like I was in danger. And so, I mean, that's part of what the treatment of PTSD is, is to try and bring you back to balance, back to like a level of, hey, you're not in danger anymore. So let's bring you to a non-dangerous situation and talk about some of the danger or um, do some activities that can help you just kind of mellow out about the the bad memories. I, and treatment varies. And I responded differently to different treatment treatments. I would just recommend people go talk to a professional about it. But to me, that was like the best explanation was I love scary music. Yeah. Talk about how you, your journey with the church, you kind of started to step away from the church. Yeah. Um, having just spoken about PTSD, part of PTSD is there are things that will trigger you. And the problem was all of this abuse happened on my mission. So it was church things that were my triggers. I one of the biggest ones was my garments. I couldn't stand feeling them on my body. Like it would just send me into an anxious fit of like, get them off of me. Um, and so I stopped wearing my garments for a while. My, my mom noticed and I'm, as I'm sure many others did. Um, so there were just things that, um, that I don't know, just slowly, like I said, I, I just, became, I, I related it to like a dog going feral. Like I slowly just felt myself becoming bitter and angry and lashing out at God of like, this was on your turf that all this happened. Like, where the heck were you, uh, in a stronger language? Cause I was okay. <laughs> pretty angry at the time, but, okay. um, so yeah, it just, I think just over time, like day day in and day out when church things now have scary music associated with them. It just, I pulled away. I got angry anytime church stuff was brought up. And, and that was another thing too, that my mom pointed out that was kind of a signal I sent off when I first got home is they were like, Oh, come to family scripture study. I was like, I don't want to. And it was like, what? Uh, not that they were like mad at me, but they were just like, okay, there's another signal that something deeper is really wrong right now with Preston. And, and my mom offered, well, like, why don't we just study together? Just like the two of us, that way you don't have to study in front of family. And when you can ask like harder questions that you don't want to ask in front of the kids. It lasted one, one session because we were sitting at the couch, read some scripture. I made some comment. My mom asked a question. I pitched a fit and my mom was like, "Never mind. Like scriptures are off limits right now. So, um, yeah. Oh, there's so many stories and so many details surrounding all of that. But I, I think just bottom line, I just slowly became bitter towards the thing that was scary to me. I mean, church was now scary. And there, there, there's one other experience I, I'm thinking of right now, too, that I feel to share is my my mom came across the in, in her own personal study. I can't remember exactly how, how she came to this idea, but she realized that I was like Lazarus. And I was dead and that it wasn't going to be my faith that brought about a miracle, but rather Mary and Martha and all the people that they rallied for that miracle. 
And so that was kind of like a code that my mom and her sisters and my dad and other family members made was just that they were the Mary and Martha's that were going to have to pull their faith together because I was dead. I was out of the picture. I wasn't praying. I wasn't going to be seeking a miracle. So it would have to be them to, to make a miracle happen. Were there other things that were triggers to you? The garments. I love you being honest with your garments, sure. Kristen. I know that's not a sign of rebellion. It's not that you don't believe in the covenants. It's just a reminder of pe- of the trauma. And so it would yeah. be very logical to take off your garments. Yeah. And, um, and were my there mom... other, yeah, were there other things that were particularly triggering for you? The uh, scriptures, because when the abuse was going on and like that whole transfer, I would sit in the bathroom and cry and read my scriptures. And so like... I just read my scriptures so much while all that abuse was going on that anytime I turned to them, again, it was a trigger. It was a reminder of that scary situation. And so shut me off. I I couldn't stand scriptures. Um, Didn't really care for conference or conference talks because they felt similar to scriptures. And also there was a pile of enzymes in the bathroom in that apartment. And so I had also read through a bunch of them. So it was just another thing that just set me on edge. Something that I was okay with was music. And so that was something that like I recognized like, oh, like music is music to me has always been treasured or just general music. Well, just in general, but, but also church music, like church music didn't upset me as much. Um, I hated the song called to serve, but I, I could generally be okay with music, uh, church music. So, but I, I was so grateful that like, as we kept discovering these different triggers, my, my mom was very wise in her counsel to me is particularly about the garments of just look, God's not okay with you not wearing your garments. Like he's not happy that you're not wearing them, but he understands why you can't right now. And I, that really struck home for me. Like it was so validating to recognize just because I have to do something that's technically not good or right right now doesn't mean that it, I'm a bad person. Like, I don't know how to word that because people can use that to justify some really bad behavior. But to me, it was just like, it's not okay, but God doesn't expect you to fix it right now. And so I washed them, folded them and put them in a box and said, later, I'll come back to them. And the process of getting back into them was long and lengthy and I couldn't, I had to ease my way back into them. And, but I mean, now they're back to being the beautiful symbol that they're supposed to be. And I, and that generally applies to all the other things too, of like scriptures. I had to ease back into those and church. I just, when I was home, I would go to appease my family. But when I was back up at school, I, it was spotty. I wouldn't go every week. Um, yeah, it's just generally just kind of sour to things. And then, of course, coming back, I had to ease my way back into it all, too. I just, I mean, this is part of your story that um, I think is particularly helpful because if I go back in my church, <laughs> my early YSA days, and you were in my ward, I would probably give you a spiritual toolbox of things to sort of correct your feelings. Mm-hmm. And I recognize that that would... I get emotional would probably just add to your burden because this wasn't a spiritual weakness, Preston. This is PTSD, and that's not a spiritual weakness. You didn't do anything. And and as I've heard more stories, I recognize that it would be very logical for you to respond this way. Mm-hmm. And I would, and I've learned to honor your pain and the 
and anger that would be a normal process of dealing with what happened to you in Japan. Yeah. And I think there, like you just brought up a really good point that there's a difference between being bad and being wounded. Um, I was incapable of doing certain things, not because I was bad, but because I was wounded. And I'm grateful that like my parents and my priesthood leaders understood that distinction, that they didn't see me as bad or rebellious. They saw me as wounded and needing help. So I, I just thought you brought up a really good point there. I, I love that because I can't just invite you to be unwounded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just <laughs> say, okay, it's time to be unwounded. Yeah, I read recognize... the scripture. Aren't you better now? And it's like, that's not how that works. <laughs> exactly. And the other difficult part of this, if your PTSD came from some other source that was just as painful, it wasn't a church-related source, let's say this was an employer situation or mm-hmm. a lot of other different situations, and then you could turn to the church and and it, in some ways it'd be easier to heal because it wasn't the source of the pain in the first place. Agreed. Yeah, I thought so about that a lot. you've got this complexity yeah. of you need to lean into the church or Christ or God or, you know, whatever that is to heal, but it is the source of the pain. Yeah. That was, that was, that's like, that's what I meant about being just confused. I was like, what of all the places? Yeah. Like now church feels bad to me. Like how do I reconcile that? And that was part of why I just avoided it when I came home. I just wanted nothing to do with it. So I think your parent is your, I mean, I just, this is a great story. It's a great parenting story. It's a great priestly leadership story. It's a great story what you're doing. And and um, I just, that's part of the story I really love of yours. Talk about your eventual visit with Elder Holland. Mm-hmm. So that was something that was organized soon after I came home, but but was we weren't able to like work it out until like the following year. So I came home in like the summer and then it was like the following, I want to say like February when I was back up at BYU Provo. Um, while I was up here for that semester, that's when I made the trip up to Salt Lake and met him in his office. But, um, when I had shared with David Holland, my Bishop at the time, when I had told him, uh, well, when he had seen the document and read it and, um, he and I had had some conversations, he asked me, he said, can I share this with my dad? And I was such a brat. I, I was such a brat at the time, but I was like, David or Bishop, you don't need my permission to talk to your dad. And he was like, <sighs> Okay, I respect that, but also like this is your story. I don't want to just like go sharing it with other people. And Great job, Bishop Paul. <laughs> he he's a very good man. Like I said, very very smart, and he took my uh, snarky bratty attitude in stride and just didn't like. He saw through all of my crap. Like he he saw through like me like mouthing off and ranting a bit. Like he would just like cut right through it and tell me what was really up, and that was something he and my mom could do really well. Um, but anyway, he, he organized the meeting after that. Like, so I heard back, um, Dave, uh, Bishop Holland said like, Hey, like my dad would like to meet with you and, and talk about this. And so that just kind of evolved over the next few months. We scheduled it. I met with him in his office in Salt Lake. Um, and did you want me to tell yeah, more about, tell so, about that visit? You're, it's just two of your parents are there. Or is it just, you know, um, like I said, I was up here for school. Okay. So it was just, I just like took, um, I can't remember if I took the train. Was the train even finished then? I don't remember. Whatever. I went up to Salt Lake, met with um, him in his office. And I'll never forget because I, I went up there and he greeted me. We walked into his office and we sat down. And one of the first things he said was, if you'd like to leave the church, 
um, I can help you through that process. And I didn't know how to respond to that. That like totally caught me off guard and I didn't say anything. So he repeated himself and he said it in different words, but he extended the same offer. If, if you'd like to go, nobody will blame you. We totally understand if you want to go like as an instant, some, I'll never forget this phrase. He said, as an institution, we've failed you. Um, and then he quickly added, well, that's not my suggestion. Of course, like I'm not suggesting that you do that, but I want you to know that it, it is an offer. Um, and I, I didn't respond very well to that. I got really mad at him, <laughs> but, but I, in hindsight, appreciate the gesture. It, it was important, pivotal moment for me to vocalize and say, uh, no, I'm not you going anywhere. You were mad at him because you weren't leaving? Because I wasn't because leaving. Offered. I, and I got mad, like, how dare you? Like the whole like source of the help is supposed to be here. I hate this place, but I'm supposed to find help here. And, and I had a testimony of Jesus Christ. Like I'd grown up in the gospel. Like I liked church before my mission. Like I'm kind of a nerd that way. Like I liked seminary. I liked scripture study. I had a testimony of all those things. So I was so mad that he would say, you can go if you'd like. No, I'm staying right here. I hate everybody. Don't want to talk to anybody, but I'm not going anywhere. And that was the first time I ever vocalized that. I, I'd never said that. And so it became kind of like a pivotal moment of like the next two years was, was a huge test of that, of like, are you really going to stay? Are you really going to stay? And I told him, no, I'm staying. And, and he was just super kind and, and very understanding. He offered me some like counsel about it of just... He related, I think I've heard this analogy in other conference talks. I don't know if just from him, but that idea of like the church is a boat on the ocean. And if the weather is stormy and, and the boat's being thrashed around, you have a better chance of surviving by staying on the boat, not jumping ship. And he made that metaphor or, or he made that analogy for me of like, that's why I'm not suggesting that you jump ship, but we've had some crew members be pretty terrible to you on this boat. And like, I'm... I can understand why you'd want to jump ship, but don't. So anyway, it was just an interesting conversation because uh, I just didn't expect it. And I walked away from that going, no, I'm not going anywhere. And that's my little sassy side of like, no, I do what I want. I'm saying. Talk about this line as an institution. We have failed you. You still remember that line. Talk yeah. about that line and what it's te what other Holland is trying to teach. Well, I think he recognized that like the church is an entity, it's an organization. And I mean, I feel bad for the brethren. They get blamed for a lot of the crap that other people do. Uh, you know, the church this, the church that. Actually, no, you just had a really bad bishop. Or actually, you just had a really mean Relief Society president. Like, it's not the brethren. <laughs> like, they're wonderful men. If you've ever met them, they are good people who really understand this gospel. So, I mean, I think he, but he recognizes that like as an institution, they're kind of the face of the church of like, it's his responsibility to apologize if something goes like drastically wrong like that. I guess, I don't know. Like, I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't, like I said, I didn't blame him for my problems, but I can see that he probably recognized that it was an apology worth extending of this institution's failed you. And if you want to leave that institution, then we understand. But I don't know. That's kind of in my mind how I interpreted it. But I've been intrigued with that part of the story. Um, I think it's a ministering home run. 
And one of the reasons I think we all love Elder Holland is his ability to say something like that. And in some ways, if I'm in your shoes and I'm not, there's a bit of healing, even though it kind of said, well, I'm not leaving, but there's a bit of um, validation that's coming your way that's so deserved, Preston, for what happened to you. And hear that from an apostle that we love, mm-hmm. that we failed you. To me, there's a measure of um, pure ministry, pure Christ-like love and acknowledgement of the difficulty and validation of your road that is part of you healing versus minimizing the difficulty of your situation. Yeah. Thoughts on that? No, I would agree. You just said a really good uh, idea too, that he didn't minimize the what I was going through at all. Like you said, it was quite validating in that regard of he totally recognized that something serious had happened. And I felt like he acknowledged that to me. At the time, I, I wasn't analyzing all of what he was saying, but I've had a lot of years to think about that conversation. And I, I agree, like he wasn't minimizing, he fessed up to something really serious that had happened and was offering solutions, offering options. He respected my agency by giving me options rather than just assuming like all will be well if you just be a good boy and read your scriptures. Like he didn't have that narrow-minded idea. It's like, look, something serious happened. Here's the options. Which one are you going to choose? This is the one I suggest, but this is what else is on the table. And like I said, we, we, we talked a little bit more and counseled a little bit more about that, but, um, man, he just leveled with me. Like this is what's going on. What are you going to do? So I love that. And I just think that's a scalable ministering moment there that not every, not using the same words or the same, but it's this, you were validated in how you felt and he trusted you enough and was confident enough in our gospel that he didn't have to give you a sales pitch on why you should stay. Exactly. And so many, not just him, but so many people I'm appreciative to, like they didn't have, you don't have to beg me to stay. Like it, it's, if it's really about Jesus Christ and it's really about his, him, if this is really his church, he's got you. And if somebody's really angry and they're leaving, okay. But just know that Christ is going to, still be available to you. He's still going to reach out to you and want to help you. Um, and I, I, like you just said, I think Elder Holland really understood that. Yeah. He wasn't begging me to stay. Uh, he doesn't have to. Jesus Christ is powerful enough reason to stay. So I love that. And, um, I certainly have learned to honor anger and pain. I, I remember when some of the YSAs were really angry and I thought, well, it's my job to sort of take, say things to make them not angry anymore. Uh-huh. And the more I matured in that assignment, the more I learned to honor their anger. Yeah. Um, I remember telling one to go out to the West Desert and just be angry, scream all he wanted. I'll go scream with you. And I just felt, but I felt there was a point where the agency really kicked in with the degree of anger and they needed to turn the atonement to heal them. Sure. So that was a feeling I had was to validate anger to some point, but then say at some point that's going to turn into you being bitter and it's going to forever change your life direction. And so I never knew quite how to draw that line. It was probably unique for every person. Sure. I'd agree with that. And, and that's so wise because like we had to fumble and figure that out on our own, but I always really, my dad's a, he's been a paramedic. And so like I, he, heard lots of stories and whatnot, but, um, I always related it to like pulling infection out of a wound. Like so many times people come with an infected wound and it's like, you cannot bandage them up yet. Like there's infection in there. And I came to realize that 
mourning, getting angry, just weeping is how you get that poison out of the wound. You have to dry out the infection. And like you said, it reaches a point where like, okay, good. You got it out of your system. Now we can apply the balm of Gilead. Now we can put a bandage on that. But first, some people just need to scream or they just need to cry or they need to walk away or like whatever. Like, I think that's where the circumstantial things come in. But yeah, I, we learned that through a few trial and error experiences too of like, you've got to get the infection out. You can't just put a bandaid on it. I want to talk about a couple of subjects, but let, let's have you choose the order, Preston. One is your sure. decision to go back on a, on a mission, okay, which came out of left field um, yeah. to you and to everybody else. <laughs> and <agreed. laughs> also just for our listeners, how to access the power of atonement to heal from things that are, aren't sin-related. All this is not sin-related that's happened sure. to you, but it's still the atonement to heal you. Which do you want to talk about first of those two? Probably that one, because I, I healed okay. before I went back out. Okay, good. And, and going back out on my mission was part of that healing process. So I think I, I love the topic of healing because that's been my life the last almost 10 years. It's been kind of nuts that it's been that long, but where do you, where do I start? <laughs> Your heart's wounded. It's got all these arrows through it, Preston. <laughs> yeah. Pull out the arrows first. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just kidding. Like I said, I'm no professional. I don't know. I've just heard stories and had a few experiences, but I am not like qualified to like give hard answers on this. Just my experience has been first and foremost, get over this idea that bad things shouldn't happen to good people. I don't know where I got that idea and I don't know where other people get that idea, but that is such an, a false idea that is not represented in the scriptures at all. Like terrible things happen to some of the best people and the best person had some of the most terrible things happen to him. So like I would say first and foremost, it's, it's, it's got to be a perspective shift. I think the reason why I wasn't healing for the first couple of years being home was because I had really incorrect perspectives of the world and the way that Jesus Christ was in relation to me. Like I had a lot of mistruths in my, in my life and you can try and heal all you want, but if you're not looking at the facts for what they are, you're not going to get the power from them that you could. So I would just say like, Healing in general is a lot about just learning what's true. It's a lot about having correct perspectives, correct expectations too. Again, I had to f abandon this idea that, well, I'm a good person, nothing bad should happen to me, or I'm in a good place serving the Lord, nothing bad should happen to me there. The more I read the scriptures, I'm like, wait a minute, there's a terrible things happen to missionaries in the scriptures. Like, why was I sh so shocked that terrible things happened to me as a missionary? Like... Again, not that you like welcome those experiences, but it's just, again, it, there's no guarantee uh, that this life will be kind to you. That's not the reason we're here. Um, so I don't know. That would kind of be it's like good my first one. idea is just change your perspective. I think part of healing too is like recognizing it's like a full body experience. It's not just at the site of the wound. Um, because like, I mean your physicality affects your mentality affects your spirituality and vice versa. Like it's, we're multifaceted beings. Like it's not like I can just treat my spiritual wound and like everything else is fine. Like, you know what? It's, they're all related. Um, so 
I don't know what to highlight. I'm sorry. There's just so much that comes to mind. Talk about, because that's one of the challenges I always had with the YSAs is I knew the atonement could take away pain. Mm -hmm. Um, This is non-sin related pain, but like repentances, I could give them this kind of little formula Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then we'd all kind of know when it was done and they were forgiven. This is not that type of situation. And it was more ambiguous for me. I didn't often know how to fully make the atonement heal them from the pain that came into their lives. And and so just any more ideas. And I know one of the things I think I listened to in the podcast or the North Star video this morning was just um, your better understanding of Christ and his ability. I think maybe even you said you're worried that me transferring my pain to him would add to his pain. And I had to kind of reprogram myself on that too. Yeah. I, so I'll I'll just share a little bit more about that idea that you just referenced. Like I had this, one of those like mistruths that I had or or false ideas that I was clinging to was that I was making it hard for Jesus Christ. Like I was projecting pain onto him. I was causing him problems. And part of like what made me think that was people would say like, oh, Jesus knows what you're going through. Like there's somebody who knows, like I don't know, but he knows. And I'm like, thanks. Like, so you're saying I'm making him depressed and angry and miserable. Like that doesn't make me feel better as a person. And I'd vocalize that on a few occasions, like pretty haughtily. And, um, I'll never forget my older brother, Trevik called me one day and he was in tears when he was on the phone. And I, I was so mean at the time. I was, like I said, so mean to my family and all they were trying to do was help me. But I was like, what, what are you crying for? Like, and he was like, Hey, I've, you said that you don't like that phrase that Jesus knows what you're going through. And I've been thinking a lot about it. I've, I've prayed about it. I fasted, I've studied, I've even gone to the temple with that question a few times of just like, why does that bother Preston? Sorry, I'm going to get emotional now because I mean, I was so mean to him on the phone, but call, he, he was doing it right. Like he was listening to what I had said. He was trying to understand it and then offer perspective. And on the phone call, he just said, Preston, I've thought about it. And he's like, can you think about it in the opposite direction? Think about it in reverse rather than Jesus knows what you're going through. Don't you now know some of what he went through? And that was a total perspective shift for me. It went like he suggested it was going in the opposite direction rather than like Jesus and the atonement being this like weird, erythral outside thing that I'm supposed to somehow like tap into the energy of the universe. And he like, that made no sense to me. But when he said that, I realized, wait a minute, Jesus Christ is a man, a person who has a physical body. So if he was physically here, I could reach out and touch him. He's a person who willingly stepped into my problems so that he could keep me company and offer me help if I would receive it. That blew my mind. Like it's such a simple idea, yet it was so revolutionary to me at the time of rather than me projecting, it was Christ stepping into it. And nothing immediately changed. Like I was still really mad and still bitter and angry, but again, that perspective shifted and I started to think differently and start asking different questions. Like, what type of person would do that? Like, why would somebody will, like, I've been through hell. Why would somebody voluntarily come into that with me? And I realized I wanted to get to know that type of person. So like, I I felt this draw back to Christ of figuring out 
what he's actually like as a person. What about him would lead him to do that? And I realized that the atonement was the worst experience that's ever happened to somebody. The atonement was a terrible experience. It was horrible. Why are we like, the atonement? No, the atonement was terrible. It was a horrible experience. But the man who performed it, I wanted to get to know that guy. I wanted him to be my friend. If you really did step into all this pain with me, what are we going to do? Okay, like now we're both sitting in it. Like, what can you do for me? And then you start to pray a little bit more. And then you start to have spiritual impressions that lead you bit by bit to heal over time. And it was just this impression of being led by him. Like there were so many moments where I just felt like he was reaching out and just saying, can you let me help you with that? Or he would reach out with feelings of like, I understand. So I, and like I said, many experiences, but that, that was kind of like the general idea, the general lessons that I was learning was the atonement cannot help you. The atonement was, wasn't, you're looking at the wrong thing. The atonement was not a good, happy experience. You need to look at the man who performed the atonement, who lived through that. He is a good person who can be actively involved in your life if you develop a relationship with him. And that's what happened over those five years between my mission was like, I started to develop a relationship with him and he's good company. You can't help but get better when you prioritize a relationship with him. So I don't know. It, it evolved. It wasn't always the same, but generally that's what was taking place was just getting to know Jesus Christ and what he could offer me and recognizing where his help was coming from too. Those are some other perspectives that I needed to change. So <clears throat> yeah, lots of turning point ideas. That's just gold what you just said, by the way. Um, I just love that. I love your role of your brother. Um, often prayers are answered through other people and their thoughts that then come into your mind and you're able to... Um, but that's a beautiful... I mean, if I could go back and clip that section out and give it to the YSAs. That's the last four or five minutes. I'd have them listen to the whole podcast, but that four or five minutes is, is really beautiful visual imagery of how the atonement and the role of the Savior. So I think of things like um, the wounded healer quote I read at the beginning. Mm -hmm. He's the ultimate wounded healer. Yeah. Um, and, he's a, and he can authentically lead you out of that desert because he understands. And that leads me to the DNC scripture, he descended below all things. So even if, there's not a scriptural account of Christ being abused. <laughs> um, so you could say, well, Christ never experienced what I experienced. There's no scriptural account of the what I went through. But then from a doctrinal standpoint, we understand somehow he descended below all things. So he walked your road and, mm -hmm. and knows and you turning to him, as you've taught us in the podcast, doesn't add to his burden. No. He's already paid the price. Yeah. The burden, like infinite suffering, you can't really make that bigger. <laughs> like It's kind of already maxed out at just being massive. But you brought up a good point, too, of it recognizing, well, how do I want to word this? Trusting that that's true. Like, just because I didn't sin doesn't mean I don't need repentance. Like, repentance isn't just for sin. Repentance means turning to God. It's that act of drawing close to God. Faith is believing him, like believing that he actually is a good person and that he will be gentle and help heal you. 
Repentance is prioritizing that relationship, turning back to him, covenants, making promises with him so that he can give you the companionship of the Holy Ghost. Like that was like this revelation that I had, this big like aha moment was like, wait a minute, just because I didn't do anything wrong doesn't mean I don't need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like I still need to act in faith. I still need to repent. Not because I did something wrong, but because I need God. Like this whole act of repentance is turning to God. So anyway, it's just, that was like the huge pattern that I was starting to realize. And it's out there. Like, it's not like the apostles don't talk about this. It's not like the scriptures don't talk about this. I just didn't see it before. Cause like I said, I had mistruths that I believed in that were kind of blinding me to these fundamental ideas. But anyway, I'm rambling. You're not rambling. Um, it's really helpful. And for those of you working on repentance, culturally, we kind of talk about, um, this isn't our doctrine, but I've heard stories where your sin makes Jesus cry because you're adding to his burden. And then I don't believe that. I just believe if you've sinned, you can't think that turning to Christ um, or even sin in the first place adds to Christ's burden. He's paid the price. He loves to forgive. I think of the parable of the lost coin and the lost sheep. To me, that is his feeling about if we turn to him and ask for forgiveness, he loves us to take advantage of the atonement to become clean. I think that's a tool of Satan to separate us from the power of the atonement to help us become clean with some of that visual imagery that I just don't agree with. So Agreed. that's, I just went off on a tangent, Preston. No, but I agree. Like okay the, with it? That sits well with me and all the experiences I've had. <laughs> Talk about this out of the blue. You're moving on with your life. You're five years back from your mission. Tell us what happened. Um, <clears throat> well, yeah, it was out of the blue. Like I said, I felt like I was kind of being led from experience to experience that just furthered my healing. First two years were dark. Like I was not in a good place the first two years I was home. But then there was this like shifting point where I finally decided that I wanted to accept help. <laughs> and as soon as I made that decision, what do you know, my healing just amplified. I got so much better really fast. And so like the the latter three years of that five-year period, I um, taught seminary for a school year. I um, went back up to school, but I transferred to BYU-Idaho, roomed with my brother, like was a gospel doctrine teacher. Just there were, there were, it was just like experience after experience that I was okay with the church. Like it wasn't scary anymore. I was wearing my garments again. I was attending the temple again. Like I, I got back everything that I had lost except my mission. And it was just this like black dot on a really pretty thing that I was just like, but there's that thing that's just like unresolved. And so many good people had tried to help me make, um, like make peace with my mission and to their credit, like it was a good placeholder. All of their efforts were good placeholders, like, it, but it still was just, it felt um, like something was wrong. Something was off about it. Like, no, like I just still wasn't okay with my mission, even though I was like in a healthy place and whatnot. But I had also made comments like you couldn't pay me to go back out on a mission. Like I was like, heck to the no, like I am a good Latter-day Saint in the States. I'm not going anywhere. I can do church stuff here. And so I was just caught off guard when out of the blue, I had this impression to finish my mission. Um, it, I was making plans to go to school. I just finished a summer job. I, I was thinking about other things. It wasn't even on my radar when out of the blue clear impression to finish 
And then everything just kind of fell in place really fast. I was out in the field like a month and a half later. Like it, it happened really fast. Um, and I don't know what details to share about the Tell story. Tell us but about, because it would be logical President Elder Holland would get back involved. He's aware of the situation. And so I think um, you talked to Bishop Holland and mm-hmm. it would be make sense that he got aware. Talk about um, he was responsible to assign you to your call yeah. and just how the... He reached out to a mission president. Sure. And, and it wasn't our part intention. Of that story. Yeah. yeah we, and we didn't, we did not mean to get Elder Holland involved. And that, that was so another thing where I'm like, who is planning this? Like, it was seriously just one thing after another that we're like, whatever. But I, I told my and parents. And for more detail on that, please go to Preston's story on North Star because we're mm-hmm. going to skip over that a little bit. But he went deeper in that. And this isn't sort of a, a desire, like you're saying, well, get Heller Holland involved. We've got this connection no. in a manipulative way or in a, but it was a very logical thing that happened that he got involved. And yeah, it, wasn't it just something kind of unfolded. Pra- yeah. Unfolded is yeah. a great word. Yeah. Like it, it wasn't our intention. Obviously something else was at play there because I, a lot of things moved that I didn't push. And so, um, but it came down to like Elder Holland was was the one that saw my mission paperwork and was going to make the assignment. Like he was, uh, he had taken that on himself to make the assignment. And I had talked to people at the missionary department. I had told them my whole story. Like it, it was kind of a, there was lots of paperwork, lots of talking to make sure like, are you sure you want to do this? Are you healthy? Like what are your, what's your game plan? If like things start, if you start to feel unhealthy out in the field and they were just very thorough about all that. But anyway, at some point Elder Holland um, was suggested a few missions that might fit, uh, for me because of the like local resources, if anything did go wrong and Atlanta came up, I guess, as one of the options because of the great resources in the Atlanta area. And so he called the mission president in Atlanta, began explaining my story. He's like, Hey, I, we have a missionary for you. I want to tell you about the missionary before you agree to receive him. I want to like, leave it up to you to decide whether or not we send this missionary to you. And he starts explaining the story and the mission president, who I know as David Foote, he was one of my dad's good friends. Uh, we were great family friends uh, growing up. Like he and my dad were bishop at the same time. I They had kids my age and some of my siblings' age. So we'd known that family for years. And he was the mission president there receiving this call from Elder Holland. And Elder Holland starts telling my story. And David Foote and his wife, Chris Foote, were two of the people two of the first non-family members we told my experience two years before because they were that close to us. Like they were that incredible of people. And so he realizes mid phone call, mid story that he's talking about me, that Elder Holland's talking about me. And he just says, Elder Holland, you're talking, he didn't say my name, but Elder Holland wisely didn't say my name. And, but President Foote volunteered that information and said, you're talking about Preston Jenkins. I know who exactly you're talking about. And we would love to have him in our mission. And I, they both were stunned and it was a really powerful spiritual experience for both of them. And Elder Holland, he, President Foote later told me that Elder Holland was weeping on the other side of the phone um, because he didn't know that we knew each other. Um, and, and that was kind of the pattern. It was just, it was like one thing after another of like tender mercies that just, it came together quite well. And I feel like a spoiled brat for that of like, stop being nice to me. Like this is working out really well. Um, I selfishly view it as God just saying, sorry about round one, but I'm going to make round two really good. 
because Atlanta was beautiful. It was wonderful. It was hard, but it was hard in all of the right ways. Like it's hard in all of the ways typical for missionaries. It wasn't scary. It wasn't life-threatening or soul damaging. It was a beautiful experience overall. And so that was just my general experience in Atlanta. And that it started in the paperwork process <laughs> that all of that started unfolding. It was pretty cool. It's really cool. And it's a credit to you to say, I'm going to go try this experience again um, and walk into that, that world that was so painful. It's a sign of your spiritual maturity and your healing. And, an and I don't think either of us are saying everybody, that would be everybody's path. No, I love that you opened not. that yep. door. President Foote's names come up in a prior podcast or in a visit with somebody that's LGBTQ. Really? Okay. Um, I can't remember who, but if you're listening, President Foote, I just recognize that there's not only Preston, that you were a great mission president too, who identifies as LGBTQ, but somebody else that really loved you. Yeah. And you were really safe for this person. I can't remember who. And so I just recognize President Sister Foote are wonderful. Yep. And they were just fantastic on the field, just super responsive. Both of them. I mean, Sister Foot kind of, I was like, you have to be my mom while I'm out here. And she accepted that. <laughs> and um, it was just nice to be able to talk to them openly about it. No secrets, just, hey, this is what I'm experiencing. And where it was able to like counsel together and problem solve. So it was really cool. One story I encourage our listeners to go back to and listen on the North Star um, video is um, you're called to be a seminary teacher in Vegas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, before um, Atlanta. And your father, who's a member of the stake presidency, extending that call when you weren't particularly looking for that call or maybe mm -mm, even what nope. you considered the right place for that. And I think one of the principles there is sometimes we'll get personal revelation as we're looking for a call and our logical mind will go, wait a second, I don't know about that. But I love the way your stake presidency acted on that feeling. Um, and your father then, tell us just about your father extending that call. And he, particularly if he asked you to accept it right now or think about that. Sure. I We're kind of going back, listeners, sure, a little yeah, yeah. bit. This goes back just uh, like two or three years before Atlanta. But it, I had just decided to move home and like I wanted to get healthy again. Like I had just personally made that decision to embrace the church again. And that's when this call came. Like I had just moved home. My dad pulls me aside and he's like, Hey, like this is an official like stake presidency, like conversation. Uh, we'd like to extend the call to you to be a seminary teacher. And I was like, dad, are you joking? Like I am a basket case, like hot mess. You don't want me teaching scriptures in front of children. Like I don't even know what I think of them. And he was like, no, the presidency, like we all know your story. Like we're all eyes open about this. We still feel that this impression comes from God. And I don't want you to answer me right now. I want you to go pray about it and then come back with an answer. He was very good. He, he did that really well. Um, very smart because I was like, fine. And I went and prayed about it. That was probably the first kneeling um, respectful prayer I had made in a long time. I mean, I had prayed, but not traditionally or respectfully before that. Uh, but that was the first time I just kneeled down and just dumped it at God's feet and just said, look, I don't get this. I don't get what the heck has been going on the last few years, but I'm willing to do this if, if we can work some things out. Like I, I want to learn, I want to get answers to my questions 
and it was Book of Mormon that year. And I'm like, all right, missionaries always tell people to start with Book of Mormon. Here we go. I have a lot of questions. Let's just start over. And I'm going to say, let's start with who are you, God? And what is my relationship to you? So it just became like a huge catalyst for studying and learning and healing. And I'm so glad that the stake presidency at the time, like you pointed out, like trusted that impression. We're like on paper, it probably didn't look like a good idea. And yet they followed that impression. I was a completely different person by the end of that school year because I was reading the scriptures again, teaching truths. And I wouldn't sugarcoat it either. I mean, I wouldn't like tell my life story to the kids. Like that's not the setting and not appropriate for some of their ages, but I would just level with them about like, Hey, I've had a question about this. And like, here's the answer I found in this chapter this week or whatever. It's just, I would just try and level with people and be honest with them about what I was finding in my scripture studies. But anyway, and Atlanta, like going back out in the mission had a similar effect of on paper, it looked really bad, but yet it worked. And so it's like, all right, cool. I love that part of your story. Um, if I understand right, you left in 2015 for Atlanta, roughly August. Mm-hmm. And um, talk about October 2015. It's conference. I don't know if it's Saturday or Sunday. It was Saturday, at, yeah. Saturday session of conference. Take us there. You're in the chapel and tell our listeners sure. what happened. So I'm a, a missionary again, which was mind-boggling to me where I'm like, I'm back out here. It was general conference. We're sitting in the chapel. There's just a few other like member families there, but there were a lot of like a handful of missionaries there from the area. And Elder Holland gets up to give his talk and starts talking and just like two minutes in like, or no, not, I'm sorry, not two minutes, like two words into his talk, the laptop cuts out and we're like, what? And so I had this overwhelming impression of like, get that thing fixed right now. I have to hear what he's going to say. And it was just this like, turn it back on. Like, I have to hear what he's going to say. And they, my companions went up there and like, we're, we're messing with it. They just rebooted the laptop and like started it over. And then um, it came back on right as he was finishing the first story of like the, the older gentleman that was on his deathbed and was talking about hurting or like leaving the church and breaking his mother's heart or something like that. But he said something about mothers and I'm like, Oh my gosh, he's going to talk about my mom. And sure enough, like the next couple of sentences, like next I speak of a young missionary who came home and yada, yada, yada. And mother that helped him like through all that. And I just was a mess. Like I just wept. And then one happy of my, tears. Were you glad oh, we talked yeah. about it? Oh yeah. I was, I was shocked, but there was no better context for my story than in the context of motherhood. Like I had like key moments with certain people, but the underlying constant help came from my mom for years, for years it was that way. And so like there was no better context for that story to be told than in the context of motherhood. And so I was just a hot mess then of course everybody around me realizes that it's, they were like, "Is this you?" And I'm like, <laughs> "Yes!" <laughs> wow. And so yeah, it was not expected, but again, I just am so grateful that he told the story in the context of motherhood. That is where it belongs because moms, especially my mom, are quite Christ-like. And her name is Sherry. Yeah, <laughs> Sherry. And my own wife um, reminds me of your mom and. My wife reminds me of the things Elder Elder Holland talked about. And moms have a special role with children. Mm -hmm. 
And this is a beautiful love story and a beautiful family story. And I love Elder Holland. Did you, I think you have Elder Holland's email. He may give that out at times on an individual basis. <laughs> yeah. Did you email him on P-Day? I did. The following P-Day. I, and I don't want to give this impression of like, we're buddies and like, we're best friends. you're like, careful no, about I think that. we've talked like once a year. Like it, we, it's spotty, but it's always wonderful when we do communicate. But I just shot him an email the following P-Day. And I just said, I, I told him first what I just said of like, first, thank you. Like there's no better way for this to be told than about and through the lens of motherhood. So first, thank you. And two, like, thanks for the warning. <laughs> and I come to find out when I talked to my parents, like he had sent a, a draft of like the story to my parents just to make sure it was accurate and that he had gotten everything straight before it was like official. So my parents knew that it was, nobody told me though. That, and he emailed back and was like, oh, I thought it, like, I thought it would be a fun surprise for you out in the field. And I was like, <laughs> sure, but <laughs> totally caught me off guard. I love that part funny. of the story. There's a very human part of that oh, yeah. story. And, and it's just fun. Like, he's just fun that way, too. Like, I think that's There's great. definitely a sense of humor. Um, talk about how this opened doors in your, I'm going to call it a ministry as part of your mission, how it opened doors to serve and to reach people because this story became public in your mission. Yeah. So it, um, how do I want to say this? So before I left for Atlanta, I, my mom and I talked and we were like, look, this is nuts that I'm like going back on a mission. We've got to be willing to talk about it. And that was like a, something that my mom and I had already talked about and decided before I even left for Atlanta, before the conference talk that my mom and I are like, we've got to be open to like helping people and talking to people about this. And, but I didn't know how to go about doing that out in the mission field. And so luckily month, month and a half in Elder Holland gives this talk and I'm like, thank you. Like, there's my end. Like that. Now I have something to like reference or at least say like, Hey, you remember that talk? Yeah. That's that story was about me and my mom. Like, what can we help you with? And so like I made myself available to priesthood leaders that I was serving in their, whose wards I was serving in. And I told president foot like, Hey, like this isn't a secret. It was just broadcasted at general conference, but I, I'm open to talking about it. So just let me know if you ever need anything. There were times that he called that president foot called to like ask a couple questions. There were other times where he would send individuals or families to me. There were times when priesthood leaders would do that where they would be like, Hey, there's this person in the ward. Are you open to talking with them? Sure. And so I met with individuals, families, priesthood leaders. There was one time I even like spoke to like a, a meeting of, of priesthood leaders uh, just to share a little bit of my experience. So it just opened the door to just being available and making my, it made it easier to make myself available to people. It's like, Hey, remember that talk? That's me. Do you want to talk about it? Um, yeah. So that's kind of the, the gist of that. And do you find... Um, people are then able to open up to you and be authentic and real because you know this, you may not know their exact road, but you understand sure, and sort of can go there in a way that other people can't go. Well, and this circles back to a question that you asked much earlier in this uh, conversation when you asked about like when I first came home from Japan about how I kind of got comfortable opening up about stuff. It's because other people would signal to me that they were okay talking about certain topics. And so when you like make comments like that of like, oh yeah, like coming home early from my, like you drop phrases like that. Oh, like, yeah, when I came home early from my mission, 
it signals to other people like, oh, wait, he mentioned that. Like, he's is he willing to talk about that? And I don't know. It's kind of silly word games, but it's what people do. You kind of signal to others like, hey, I'm willing to talk about this topic. I like teased it so that others can then ask if they want to know more. And I've always said that, like, look, I'm an open book. Like, I don't always know what to say, but I'm open to talking about it. And I'm not scared of questions. I bet you can't come up with a question I haven't come up with already. So, like, let's talk. Um, so, I don't know. It's just I'm just making yourself available, dropping key phrases to let people know that you're not scared of topics. And I love that there's, I come back to the word shame and Satan's role around shame is to create mm -hmm. shame around everything that happened to you. And, and then that makes you not want to talk about it, but if there's, as you've shared your story, there's no shame. Mm -mm. Um, and you're, and you're in such a place emotionally and spiritually and, and that you recognize that and you're able to talk about your story and it takes a while to get there, but then sure. that then, because there's no shame and, it's not like you broadcast it, but you share it when you need to. I love the yeah. idea of you tease it. With, yeah. I'm an early release missionary. I've had, I've, I teased the YSAs a little bit at times and some testimonies that I'd gone through some times of emotional challenges. Like mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons I love Elder Holland's Broken Vessel Talk because he did mm -hmm. that and it made yeah, me respect to his him own even more. Mm -hmm. And so I think a, a really effective leader sometimes we think has just got everything perfect, every box checked everything yeah. going right in every category of his or her life. And that's what we need in a leader. But sometimes we need vulnerable, real, authentic leaders that can sort of give us vision that we can, we, okay, I I'm, can be like that guy. Yeah. In some way, Christ was that. Um, he was perfect, um, but he, he, he teased that he was safe to be to because he was with everybody that everybody said he shouldn't be with. That's one of the ways he teased. I think that's your word. Yeah. Or telegraphed that because of his individual ministry of being with everybody and validating everybody, that then there was a principle there that he taught, I think, that everybody knew they could be safer on Christ. Yep. Anybody's welcome to reach out. And like that, I'm just mimicking what I've seen other people do for me. And ultimately what Christ has done for each of us is just, making himself available. Um, talk about your hopes for the future. You want to marry a woman and go to the temple. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't see any reason to not aspire to that. Like, so I'm naturally attracted to the opposite gender from what I've heard about marriage. It's not all about sex. Like that, that's not the reason or like, that's not the pivoting point of a relationship. That's quite unhealthy if it is. So, I don't know. I just, to me, like I've, and I've always had that idea. Like, it's just, why would I unplug myself from that vision? Like there's, yeah, will I have, will I have hardship and hiccups? Yeah. So does every marriage again, like getting rid of that silly idea that everything must be blissful all the time. Like that's a boring life. No, thanks. So I don't know. I've just fundamentally don't see a reason not to aspire to it. And we talked about this before we went live a little bit, and uh, this has been a bit of a journey for me because I didn't realize that mixed orientation marriages work. You being gay and marrying a straight person, assuming that's who you marry, a straight woman, um, then you're in a mixed orientation marriage. I kind of thought those kind of broke up because um, I knew some high profile ones, but after doing podcasts, 
our listeners could Google the um, Travis and Margaret Stewart podcast. That's a uh, mission president came out gay to his wife and everybody following being a mission president. It's an incredible marriage. They did mm -hmm. that podcast together. It's a beautiful love story. I was on sacred ground listening to that couple. And I got a little rebuke of the spirit, Preston, in that podcast that some of the things I had assumed about healthy marriages were wrong. Mm. And when I hear your hope that you want to marry a woman, I just, I I want you to, I would do everything in my power. I'm not your priesthood leader. I'm not your father. <laughs> I have no standing with you, but I'd want to do everything I can to give you that hope's going to happen. And that some wonderful woman is going to see who you are and want that in a husband. And that this beautiful marriage that you want will happen and you will be an incredible father. And she will recognize the things that you've gone through or the very things that she wants in a husband and a father because of your ability to help her and help your future kids. Yeah. So I would just, you know, I just believe that's your future. And I would never want to take another story or sometimes we say, well, you've got to live your truth in society. And so that would mean your truth is you've got to be married to a man mm -hmm. or you're not being authentic to who you are. And I don't believe that. I think you can live your truth. Your truth is your truth. And I'm not going to take somebody else's definition of truth or society definition of truth and impose that. Um, are you okay with every, all of that? Sure. I Any mean, thoughts I, you'd like to share just because you're walking this road. Well, and I've always, that like you asked about like high school and like why I didn't identify with any of the labels. It's like, why? Like I'm living by his truth, like capital H his truth. Like I don't have like individual truth. Like that, that idea just never resonated with me. It's like, no, like there are eternal truths that are like, older than God, like God is God because he lives by truth. And so it's like, that's why I've never, well, I mean, obviously I had like my two like dark years where I was like, I don't want to deal with the church, but the reason I've come back and come back with a vengeance is just because truth is truth and it's empowering when you accept it and live by it. And so, and, and another thought came to mind too, of like the more media I consume, the the easier it is to lose track of that vision. Um, and I, I've just got to point that out that like... When you say media, help our I mean like understand. movies, music, like the more I partake of that, it's not that I like shun it. No, I love music. I love movies. I love those things. But I've just been much more aware. I'm much more aware of how they affect me and my perspective of the world. Because... Again, I had a lot of mistruths and I realized a lot of it came from media. Um, when I realized that media is a facade, like it, media doesn't accurately portray reality. And so just I had to be more careful once I had that realization about how I let media affect me because it's just fluff. It's fun, but it's fluff and it doesn't actually have merit in the real world. Um, and another, just sorry, one, one thought came to mind too, is I had a lot of conversations that helped me get to that conclusion. It's not like, oh yeah, I want to marry a woman and like everything will be fine. And I've always believed, like, I've always had that desire, but I've, my desire for it has deepened and my understanding of why it's possible has deepened because of experiences that I've had. I know many mixed orientation marriages uh, of friends that are in mixed orientation marriages, um, 
So like one, I know it's possible. And many of them are like, nah, like we don't need to talk to anybody else about it. It's just between us. And I'm like, thank you. Like that's so, this seems so healthy. Um, sorry, long way to get to the point, but my, my mom and I had a conversation once that, that really helped me understand. I, and it was so funny. I was kind of trying to ask without asking, <laughs> but my mom and I were at the kitchen table. My dad was out in the backyard with one of my brothers and I was like, mom, what do you find attractive about dad? And she kind of saw through like my question and was like, um, you mean because we're old and we're not like beautiful young people anymore? And it's like, okay, you caught me. Like, why do you stay attracted to somebody? And like, what really lasts? Like, what do you find so attractive about dad? And she like looked out the window at him for a bit. And she said, well, look at what he's doing right now. And I think he was playing catch with my brother or something like that. Like he was doing, he was interacting with my younger brother in some way in the backyard. And my mom said that, that is what I find so attractive about him. He is a good man who honors his covenants and exercises his priesthood authority righteously, like not in abusive ways. Like she's like, he's a good person. And, and I recognize that that obviously is like decades of a marriage like that was her opinion after decades of marriage, but it again taught me about what's possible. I don't want to marry somebody because they're ravishing. That's not going to last. Like that to me, isn't a worthwhile, like deep deal breaker motive to have when it comes to relationship. It's so much more than that. I don't know. That's just my thoughts. And I, love that. I recognize that I am not married, so I'm quite ignorant in certain ways. But again, to me, like on paper, like there's no reason why it, it can't. I love that. And to me, that's you following personal revelation, the source of truth, mm -hmm. um, turning to trusted sources to get your information about your future. Yeah. And I think part of that is also hearing successful mixed orientation marriages that it sounds like you're aware of. And listening to why it's successful. And... I've listened to the ones that aren't successful and I've listened to why. And I'm like, well, good. I'm not going to make those mistakes. Like it, I don't I know. I think it's that's just, good. I think yeah, that it's helps you make pooling information. Decision. Yeah. And I would recognize whoever your future father-in-law is. I, I think he'll feel like me and he'll just recognize that he'll see who you are, Preston, and he'll know how you'll take care of his daughter. And you'll know the loyalty you'll, You'll give to her the love you'll give to her, the complete commitment and the kind of father you're going to be to his future grandchildren. So I look at it as from a, if you were my future son-in-law <laughs> and the little bit I heard this morning on North Star video and what you've shared here, there's no question about who you are and the values you have and your ability to take care of people and love people and heal people. Um for, I think some of, if anybody's hearing this for the, me for the first time, my feeling is um, after meeting with so many LGBTQ latter states that they are some of the valiant spirits in the pre-mortal life, people that I've looked up to. I've had the honor of giving maybe over 100 blessings to LDS LGBTQ people, and I have blessed some of the most valiant pre-mortal spirits. And I've had this feeling, and you'll need to comment on this, Preston, that their sexual orientation isn't a mistake, that something didn't go awry, that this isn't something, God's not up, God's not up there doing a head palm and going, oh no, what happened? <laughs> Oops, um, how'd I let that happen? It, <laughs> and somehow, and 
in your mortal plan, you're right on track, including your sexual orientation. And this is something that you should feel just as much peace about as a straight member of the church feels about it. Look at God with no shame and an equal amount of love. Are you okay with that? Yeah. And it's interesting that you bring that up because something that has been brought up to me by other people, but also just personal revelations that I've received too. God wouldn't put people through this unless he knew what type of people they could become from it. And I don't know if that, that wasn't worded very eloquently, but it's just the idea that I I don't know how I want to say this. Well, we, we live in a fallen world. And so why are we so shocked when we, we recognize that there are elements about this world that are broken. It's like, well, yeah, that's the point of this phase of our eternal lives. It's supposed to not fit what it, it, we're not done yet. Like we have a lot of growing and learning to do and changing to do. And I don't know. So it's just to me, like any of like my, like the hardest questions that I asked or the ones that bothered me for the longest time, I found the greatest peace from the most simple answers, plan of salvation and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like there's a reason that we go over them so much because we miss so much of those doctrines when we talk about them. It's like, and when you're in different phases of your life, different parts of those doctrines are needed or stand out to you. But I don't know. I'm rambling again, but it's just, yeah, I mean, God didn't make a mistake, I but just, also this isn't the end. Like, this isn't like, oh, well, you're gay. Like, sorry, you missed that up. And it's like, no, like, <laughs> that is not what this life is about. Yeah, and I just think it's, I love Elder Uchtdorf's impressionistic painting. It is as you get older, and you're already seeing some of those dots connect right now, but that's, to me, all these different dots. And when you get older, you start to look back and see how it all is part of a your personal mortal plan. Mm-hmm. And part of your personal mortal plan is being able to heal people in a way that 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 you are reaching people right now that no one else is able to reach and heal people in a way that no one else. And some of your biggest paydays that have already happened, Preston, are you being able to go with someone that, like no one else has been able to do and heal them? Or that point was... them to the Savior to for that source of healing. But often it, he needs a mediator. He needs someone that can kind of connect him. And that's, you're the wounded healer. And I just think that's part of your beautiful life mission. And and my belief is foreordained from pre-mortality. And I would agree. That was the only thing that kept me going. What you just said, that idea, like nothing else kept me going. When I was at my lowest point and was on a ledge metaphorically, it was the idea that if I could just endure this, I would be able to help somebody else. That was the only thing that kept me from jumping off the ledge, metaphorically speaking. And it's just, and realizing like we've talked about already that Christ has already done that. And now he's just trying to teach us how to do it too. On a much, like you said, much more individual microscopic level. Like I'm not going to perform an infinite atonement. I've gone through hell, but that's given me the ability to turn around and help other people still in hell. And it's like, that's the whole point. That's what we're all learning to do is become like him. And thank goodness it's not on the same scale as him, though. <laughs> Give a shout out to Becky and Scott McIntosh. Yes. Tell all our listeners how you know them and, and their role in your life. Yet another thing that I'm like, who wrote this story? Like, God is really good to us. I 
he was my bishop a couple semesters ago. Um, math again, I'm not quite sure like what year it was. It, it was within like the last year and a half, two years. But I, I was at BYU at the time, moved, uh, brand new ward, walk in. Uh, they're like, oh, like after sacrament meeting, if you're new, like come to like the new new to the ward meeting and meet the bishopric. In that meeting, Becky stands up and is like, hi, I'm Becky McIntosh. My husband is the bishop. And like, we're that family from like mormonandgay.org. And like, we're really open about it. Like we're fine to talk about it. Like it's a safe space to talk. So, and I'm like, who? Wow. What? <laughs> like, so I like went up right up to her. I'm like, Hey, like I loved your stuff. Like I've seen it all before, like small world. Like it, it seems so silly, but I was like, and I'm that kid from Elder Holland's talk. <laughs> and I was like, we need to talk. And so, yeah, we just, That's awesome. we just talked a few times and, and I was only in their ward for a semester. So unfortunately it wasn't very long. And I think he was even released like the following semester. So but it was just this like little three month, four month window where I got to meet them, make that connection. And we've still been in contact with them and I've gotten to see them. And he and I spoke at the last North Star conference last year in March. And, um, and I know she, she's really involved with like the youth at the North Star uh, yeah. conferences. And so anyway, it's just a fun little connection that was made. I, I mean, outside looking in, it's like, well, that was random and coincidence, but uh, I know, I know who's writing this story and he's That's really great. good. I love the Macintoshes, Becky and Scott and good people. Um, I'm going to make one comment and you can maybe any last comments, but one of the things I think is happening is that this story is blessing the whole Jenkins family. You know that, but I would think that the skills that are being developed because of the family walking with you on this road, you've got, there's nine children mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> and I, and I'm only the second you've one given shout outs to your older brother. And I think in the, in the North star video, another brother that you roomed with. And uh -huh, I just yeah. think one of the, as this family gets married and, and every, this experience has strengthened your family. I think it's an incredible coming together family moment to solve a really difficult issue that will give everybody in your family better skills to do that. Agreed. And so as a, your younger sibling that's young right now is going to get married one day and be a parent. And what this experience to me, that's one of the paydays for your parents is this has been difficult at times to your mom, as you know, mm -hmm. but I think the paydays are not only your journey and where you are, but the impact for good in your family. Any thoughts on that? And then any closing comments? Sure. I think just that, it doesn't just apply to these topics. Like we're, we're a big family and we still got problems. Like we're like our family is going through their own struggles and all of us are individuals going through our individual struggles. Like it's not like we're out of the woods, like, Oh, I got better. And like, everything's fine now. But, um, so, I mean, we're, we're still in mortality having to live our lives day in and day out. But it's so cool to me how like one isolated, really intense experience can teach us lessons that apply to many facets of our lives. Um, and yeah, we've already seen that to be true in many ways that yeah. just service opportunities or, or even at work or school or whatever. Like the, these are general good lessons that we've learned from this whole great. And experience. And ability to communicate and talk and process mm -hmm. stuff. And some or families just, just be it's available again. Be like, available like yeah. your mom. It's, I think bottom line, it's just taught us to be available to people because for two years, I just needed somebody to answer the phone and let me ball <laughs> or let me 
save not nice things about the church and about individuals or just sit there and talk me through something or to preach sometimes like there was some preaching and whatnot and that was good there was a place for that I needed that so it's just being available for what's needed and I, I think this is really important and I'm and I'm glad you asked that because on the receiving end, my mom could do no wrong during those two years. Like she always did what I needed her to do. She always said what I needed said at the right moment. She was always quiet and listened when I needed. Like I just was mind boggling to me how incredibly in tune she was with what I needed at the time I needed it. When to preach, when to be quiet, when to push, when to pull, when to just let me be or like she just always knew. And I, and I vocalized that to her years later. Like I, I just asked, like, how did you always know what I needed? I, her response totally caught me off guard. She burst into tears and said, you think I knew what I was doing? I didn't know what I was doing. She's like, I would pour my guts out in prayer, floundering in the dark. What do I do? How do I help him? What do I do? Like freaking out about how to help you. And what would come out was, okay, I'm sorry you feel that way. I love you. And yet on the inside, she had this whole tumultuous experience, felt nothing from heaven, felt no inspiration about what to do. She just poured her guts out in prayer and tried to help. And that shocked me because on the, like I said, on the receiving end, I would get more angry because I could tell she was in tune with the spirit. Like it made me even more angry at the time. So I I think that taught us a huge lesson too, of like, you don't have to know how to help somebody. You just have to be willing. You just have to say a prayer, ask for divine help. And whether you like actually feel like you're receiving divine help just get to work helping people that was like a huge lesson to us about being available you you don't necessarily know what's gonna help but if you pray and seek to be a help god's really good at giving you opportunities to be that help and most of the time you'll have no idea for years she thought she was a failure because she couldn't help me and on my end i was shocked because she could do no wrong. So I don't know, just recognize again, like you're not always going to know what you're doing, just be available. And you probably are making a bigger impact than you realize. It's great advice. You just helped a lot of parents out, Preston. Yeah. Anything else you want to share? Well, and recognize that it wasn't pretty. Like I was still really mean and standoffish, but that didn't make my parents' tactics wrong. Just because I responded poorly to it doesn't mean that what they were doing was wrong. And I think that's a, a something that sometimes people can get stuck on is it's like, oh, like he didn't like that. So we need to change the way we approached that or we need to change our mind about things. No, I, I'm so glad my parents stuck to the gospel of Jesus Christ and held fast to their testimonies, even though they had tons of questions too about my experience. I mean, they were angry too. Like their kid had just gone through this horrible experience and they went to God going, what the heck? I just chose not to go to God. I chose a different crowd to go talk to. But I, I just wish more people understood that just because somebody responds poorly doesn't mean you're a bad parent like hello welcome to godhood where 
a third of his kids didn't want to do what he wanted and we hadn't even gone to earth yet. Like, doesn't mean he's a bad parent. He's the best one out there. And a third of his kids hated him and didn't want to do it. It's great. And I was like, we weren't even to the start line yet. So yeah, I just wish more parents would just be kinder to themselves. Like you're doing probably way better than you think. And just because your child is wounded or, or mad or angry doesn't mean you're a bad parent. So I don't know. We'll, That's kind of my thought on that. That's great. Um, we'll just kind of end there. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been a great podcast. Um, thank you, our listeners. Thank you, Preston Jenkins. I feel like your parents, Trent and Sherry, have been here through you. And great <laughs> Again, job I am as, the product of good people. I, I'm a combination of their efforts. President Foote, Bishop Holland, Elder Holland, there's, and others, many other people. Um, that have been in your life. And I'm thankful for you just sharing this story because it's one of the very best stories of using the atonement to heal. And that's a gift that you have to be able to heal other people by connecting with the power of the atonement and giving a belief it applies to them. Thank you, our listeners, for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler.